Hello, and welcome to Centering Sisters, the podcast featuring real talk for Black women by Black women. Here are your hosts, psychologist for the culture, Dr. Tiffany Monfort-Dent, educator for the culture, Dr. Carolyn Strong, and storyteller and healer for the culture, the Tamara Winfrey-Harris. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much. This has been, again, an interesting day. We had a few technical difficulties, but we are here. We are live. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Centering Sisters, a video cast for Black women by Black women. It is always an honor to hold space with all of you. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure you tag your friends um, as we begin our show. Tag us, tag them, share. Make sure that you're in our inbox and in our comments thread so we can hear from you as we begin our discussion. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube. So I am Dr. Tiffany. Um, I call myself a psychologist for the culture because in the work that I do, I center the needs of Black women, girls, and femmes. And I am here with my lovely co-host, Dr. Carolyn Strong and the Tamara Winfrey Harris. Let them know who we are, people. Go ahead, the Tamara Winfrey Harris. I am a writer who focuses on race and gender and the way they intersect with politics, pop culture, and current events. My first book is The Sisters Are All Right, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women and America. And Gabrielle Union's uh, production company, I'll Have Another, and Wise Entertainment um, have bought the rights to that book in order to create a series. And the second edition of book is coming out in October. My current book is Dear Black Girls, Letters to Your Sisters on Stepping Into Your Power. And I am Dr. Carolyn Strong. I am an educator in the Chicagoland area. My work focuses on discipline disparities as they relate to Black girls and anti-racist education in a nutshell. So thank you. It's always, you know, just hearing about how amazing y'all are. I just, I'm, I'm just grateful to know y'all. So again, thank you all for joining us on this segment of Centering Sisters, a video cast for Black women by Black women. And we are going to go ahead and get started. So up first, we have... Girl, these technical difficulties are not going to get me to flux today. Before we go any further, what we do want to acknowledge is that I'll let you do this. You're much better at it. As we know, this is Sandra Bland. She was a 28-year-old Black woman who was found hanged in her jail in a jail cell in Waller County, Texas, on July 13, 2015, three days after she had been arrested during a traffic stop. They ruled her death a suicide, but there were protests against her arrest, disputes around the cause of death, and also racial violence against her. Um, when she was pulled over by the state trooper, Brian Insinia, um, the exchange escalated. Only part of the dash cam video was shown. Texas authorities and the FBI conducted an investigation and determined that the jail did not follow their required policies. Um, in December 2015, as we are used to, a grand jury declined to indict the county sheriff and jail staff for the felony related to her death. Um, in Senia, though, the officer was indicted for perjury because he did make false statements around her arrest, and he was subsequently fired. Um, in September 2016, Bland's mother settled a wrongful death suit against the jail and the, the police department and required some procedural changes. In June 2017, the perjury charges against Insinia was dropped when he agreed to never be in law enforcement again. So today we remember Sandra Bland. Our prayers go out to her mother, um, her sorority sisters, and all of those who loved her. Um, and we just wanted to honor her memory. So Sandra Bland, who died on July 13th, 2015 at the jail in Waller County, Texas. We speak your name and honor you as an ancestor far too soon. Thank you. Who or what is next on the list? Oh, this should be your favorite. This is our You Tried It for the day. So as you know, You Tried It is when we see something and we're like, you know what? You really on some mess. Like, this is what you're going to do. So I live in Ohio. Jim Jordan is actually one of um, elected officials here in Ohio. So Jim Jordan decided on July 6th that he was going to be smart and dumb all at the same time, um, and also appropriate the language that we in our um, that we have used around defunding the police, and say defund critical race theory. 
Hi, teacher here. When was education ever funded? I got questions. And then the, you, other of, this, the other part of that is no one <laughs> teaching critical race theory outside of a college and law school. Don't don't get me started on that. Like that probably too high up on on Bloom's taxonomy to even discuss with him. So I'm just going to keep it at the bare minimum and just just keep it simple. How can you defund something that was never funded? Even if we go with their definition of what critical race theory is, when have you ever put enough money into the schools to defund anything? Because last time I checked as a teacher, I'm spending hella money to get what I need in my classroom. And as a parent, I'm spending hella money for the teacher to get what they need in the classroom. So what exactly are we defunding? And I, I think my, my struggle is I need in your ignorance, in your stupidity, in your white supremacy to be original. I think that that's one of the things for me. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, you come with all lives matter and blue lives matter. Like you can't even come up with your own statement. When we talk about defunding the police, which means something very different than, than you, they're always putting out there where it's like, you know, we need to make sure resources are used in various levels of prevention and intervention with our community. Where is the money being spent? How can we stop the problem that um, resulting in violence? You then took that and said, defund critical race theory. Again, first of all, it's not funded. Schools are not funded, which is also a bigger issue. But you thought you was being smart and you were really being really dumb. And I think that's the thing that bothers me the most is the lack of intelligence. Like it's this whole thing where we talk about black people and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, if you were smart, you would be successful. This dude is dumb. Like you're saying stupid stuff. But at the same time, you thinking you being real intelligent, you don't even know what critical race theory is. And when Most of them don't. And it's, it's so crazy to me because somebody was on a show and they said, define it. And he said, I got I got research to do or something. You know, I, but I think the scary thing is he's not dumb. He knows what he is doing. He is talking to other people who are uninformed. Mm -hmm. They know what they're doing. He's using that language because it's a dog whistle and it goes directly to the people who are all head up over something that is not being taught in schools at all. And so like the 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 anti teaching the babies the truth about race and America brigade are very lockstep on the same messages and they know who they're talking to. That's what's scary is that they're not dumb. They very much are trying to do something and trying to, you know, keep us because of everything that happened last year and you know the fact that schools are after centuries some of them are just wanting to dip their toe a little bit into the water of telling of history <laughs> of truth, if you will. You know, they want to make sure that doesn't happen. Somebody got up and said, Dad, how crazy would it be if we like stop lying to children? And it became a, a whole federal, a literal, literally a federal case. You know how your mama used to say, don't make a federal case out of stuff? This literally became a damn federal case. And, and, and I think, and I think my, I, I agree. I do think that they're speaking to an uneducated group of people who are just looking for the dog whistle statements to, that can allow them to be up in arms. Um, I, I think my struggle is, and I will say that um, I went to the, the page and I actually made some comments to him, but a lot of people were on there like, no one's teaching critical race theory to children. And people were saying schools are not funded. Maybe while you're saying defund schools, maybe you should fund them first and then let's see how that works. And then we can go back and look at defunding that part. It's not needed. Um, but, you know, I, I think he actually represents my... Um, my hometown area. So he is very much the area he represents is going to buy into that is more about white supremacy. Um, as you know, um, we were talking offline about one school wanted their ways of addressing critical race theory is they didn't want the book about Ruby Bridges to be read in schools because they said there was no redemption for white people at the end. Has anybody asked Ruby Bridges what she thinks about this since she is still fairly young and spry? Because this wasn't that damn long ago. I think they would at say to you this. Who's Ruby Bridges? Because we don't believe that happens. Anything about Ruby Bridges happened. Stop telling lies about America and making the babies feel bad. That would be the answer to that. I'm with Tammy. I don't think they believe Ruby is a real person. 
I think that they think that this was just some novel, which I find it interesting because, you know, I, I don't believe in comparing struggles, you know, uh, oppressions. However, I don't see them saying Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank needs to be removed from schools because there's no redemption for Nazis at the end. Because, you know, like no one's saying that when it's things that they don't align themselves with, that it's OK, we don't need to have. It. But I don't think they believe that Ruby Bridges is a real person. I, I think that's part of it. They don't believe and that she's a real person. And my thing was, did they redeem themselves at the end? Probably not. Yeah. No, they did by doing what? I don't know yet. <laughs> they let you. Um, so if, if they don't believe that Ruby Bridges is a real person, when they remade the Ruby Bridges painting with Betsy DeVos, as the person that was being derided walking into the schools, what did they think they were doing? Um, I think they thought this was a fictional character, like Luke Skywalker or something. And they just said, oh, this is a story we've all heard, but we don't believe she's real. I don't think they believe she's a real person. I mean, I would love to hear from Ruby Bridges like, Ruby, do you think that they should change your story and give redemption to people in that moment? Did they? Because I'm sure it's your story and... If redemption happened immediately at the end, that you would have been saying that immediately. So, but I think what they go back to again and again is that's in the past, and why do we need to dwell on that? But she still lived only in the past until we start taking down Confederate statues. Then is history and memorializing, and we all need to keep doing that. And I think that when we're looking of hundreds of years of slavery, the Confederacy was three, four years, and yet. You're holding on to that a lot longer. And let's be clear, Jim Crow, segregation, all of those things were a lot longer than the Confederacy and more recent than the Confederacy. And yet those are important historical facts that we need to continue to hold on to and have at our county fairs, which is where I see most of the Confederate flags as well. So. Look, I got clothes older than the Confederacy. So let's let's just be clear. <laughs> what, do, what do we have next on our list of genetics? I don't know. What do we, oh, okay. Another You Tried It. This incident, which was filmed and uploaded to YouTube by a woman who identified herself online. I Hopefully I got her name right. Ijeoma Yukinta shows another shopper at this mall on Short Hill who rushed at her. Yukinta is a black woman and pursued her around the store yelling and crying. Um, she then begins to ask Yukinta to stop recording her. She lies on the floor of the store, yells her to get away from me while moving towards the black woman. In another video, then the police show up and then um, tell Yukinta, we can't make her leave the store or the mall. Several officers then can be seen talking to the woman as Yukinta tells them and she's crying and they're just being all sympathetic to her tears. I don't care about her white tears. So that is what happened in the mall. She swung at her. She chased her around the mall, around Victoria's Secret, um, told her, don't film me. And here we are. <laughs> now, mind you, she swung at her because she was like, can you can you get your six feet? I need my six feet. That's mm -hmm. what kicked it off. She said, mm -hmm. I need you to um, back up off me. I, I watched all but 11 parts or whatever. There it was a lot. I watched the whole. It was, it was a mini series. The thing that confused me was that while everybody in the store seemed to like agree that this woman had lost her rabid mind, mm -hmm. nobody like tried to inter like intervene. Like the managers, and there were you know managers of color I saw mm -hmm. there. Like when the police, when the security showed up, no manager, no person who worked in the store walked over to say, yes, this woman over there talking to police, halting this customer. No one came over to corroborate or back up the black woman, even though it seemed like they agreed with her because you hear the manager at one point tell her, okay, I've called security, they're on their way. But no one ever told the, the white woman to leave the store. No one, they just let her chase this black woman around the store. They also let her put her pillow down before she passed out. They also let her put, like, fluff up her purse and then just pass out. And I'm like, ma'am, you're doing all this with a colostomy bag. That just seems like a lot. Like, oh, she had a colostomy bag? Yes. She was doing all this writhing around on the floor with the colostomy bag. Where did, the, where did this come out? Well, apparent like you can apparently you can see it if you look closely, and most of her online presence is on a website for ostomy patients to find like partners 
who are either sympathetic to or also have the same issues. And on the website, it was something like she has it because I don't think it was Crohn's, but it was something along the line of Crohn's and chronic constipation. So she has an ostomy bag. And I'm just like, I feel like that was a lot of movement and a lot of throwing yourself around with that could have had other potential disasters for you just because you, quote unquote, don't want to lose your job in your apartment. And it's like, how about if you want to keep your job in your apartment, you don't assault black people in the store? Just a thought. But I think the thing is, is that she felt very much like she should be able to assault black women in the store. It's the because and she could have because if it wasn't filmed, because as Tammy said, no one was doing anything. There was not going to be any consequences for her for doing that. Where the consequence came in is that this uh, this black woman filmed it. And I think that that's that piece of it is that it was put out on social media. And so now there's a consequence. But there was none. There wasn't from the police. Um, from what I saw, the, there was the police were saying we can't remove her. There were not charges being pressed by the police. Um, the store wasn't sitting here and saying, hey, we corroborate what happened. She did chase her. She did do these things. She was absolutely going to get away with doing this if it wouldn't have been filmed. Um, and Victoria's Secret has released a statement saying that their people did everything right. They said their people, when when the lady started wilding out in the store, they are not supposed to intervene. They're supposed to call mall security mm-hmm. and they're supposed to directly report it to their whatever safety and security people. Like they're not supposed to intervene. And I think the thing is, there's not, to me, there's not an expectation that you get down on the ground and drag them out the store. Right. But when this, you can call the security, but when you call, what do you tell them when they get here? Like this woman right. is chasing her around the store. She's, you know, swinging on her. She's trying to grab, like, because again, that information allows a removal because I saw something briefly and, and that was all I um, saw was um, where the black woman was like at the police station and saying like, even what's written here and what people are saying ain't what happened. And so that's yeah. a piece of it. No one's sitting here expecting you working in the store to get on the ground with her, to try to wrestle her out, to tell her to leave. But when the, when the security comes, you don't then say, hey, Let's tell you what happened and why she needs to go. And I don't believe like I get why, like Tiffany said, once it escalated and the woman is shaking on the floor and chasing people around. I see why a manager would not intervene Mm -hmm. security. But the minute she like rushed up on that other like like another customer, I do not believe that it is against their policy for the manager to say, ma'am, you have to go. No, I don't either. But that's that's the that's their story, and they're gonna stick beside it. Right. If she refuses to go, I get how you have to call security. But no one even said, "Ma'am, calm your ass down and leave our store." Because they want to leave for less. <laughs> what I saw was, I think everything that came after the beginning was her trying to save herself. Because mm-hmm. she was just a woman and she was kind of smiling. And then I think she realized what she did on camera. Mm-hmm. And that's when all the waterworks, I didn't even see tears. That's when the, ah, that's when that happened and stopped filming me. It was, it was definitely a Carolyn Dunham moment. <laughs> that's when it like ratcheted up. And everything after that was, oh my God, I'm having a mental breakdown. So I think that was very much. Can I, can I ask, can, is it time to ask a mental health professional? Mental health professional, ding, ding, ding. one of those? Oh, yeah. I, I think we do. So if you're in the middle of some sort of mental breakdown, theoretically and usually, based upon your professional experience, does one have the, the wherewithal to say, stop filming my mental breakdown? Um, that's an interesting one. Um, it's possible. Um, however, I think my concern is more so that the world is trying to frame this at being someone who works with people with mental health issues. When you are just on racism, racism is not in the DSM-5. Um, white supremacy, acting on that, thinking you can get away with assaulting black women is not in the DSM-5. And so my concern is even if she does have mental health issues, even if she had escalated to that point, people making it an excuse for her behavior. um, Most people with mental health issues do not 
act like that. And so you then clump racism and white tears in with that. And that's unfair to people who really have mental health issues. So, but I think she was trying to get sympathy um, and knowing that the world was going to end up saying, You're, this black woman was now, it changed the narrative. This black woman was wrong because this poor woman was struggling and she kept filming her. And so now she becomes the victim. So. Well, our, la- our last you tried it, speaking of, of poor white women in need of assistance. Okay. Okay. Rachel Nichols, a white female sportscaster, was caught suggesting that the host of NBA Countdown, Maria Taylor, black woman here, had gotten the job because she's black. Nichols made a remark um, during a phone conversation um, about a year ago after learning that she would not do host, um, do the coverage for the 2020 NBA finals as she had thought. So she says, I wish Maria Taylor all the success in the world. She covers football. She covers basketball. But if you need to give her more things to do because you're feeling pressure about your crappy long-term record on diversity, which by the way, I know personally from the female side of it, like go for it, just find it somewhere else. You're not going to find it from me or taking my things away. So she was caught saying this. Um, Two, interestingly enough, Adam Mendelson, who's the long-term advisor um, of LeBron James and James's agent, Rich Paul, um, so she also sought his advice um, because she believed her bosses were advancing Taylor at her expense. So when we have these conversations about, you know, solidarity and this tendency um, at times for white women to say we're all in this together, wanting to call us this sisterhood. When it comes down to it, she very quickly was like, you know what? No, it, you ain't going to take this from me. So she's again, of course, come out since and apologized. Um, Maria Taylor has, from my understanding, said she ain't trying to fool with her. Centering Sisters, an unapologetic podcast for Black women by Black women. Well, I got one question because I know we have to get to our guests, but what in the 53% makes people think that that's not the case? And I think, wasn't it even higher than that in the last election? With, Was um, it 57 I think it actually went up with white women. And so yeah, I think it was 50, 55 or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. 55 or 57. Yeah. So I got nothing. between. I mean, it's, it's been an interesting couple weeks for white women in the media because Addison Ray had her job at ESPN for like, what, 20 seconds? Something like that. Felt, felt like that. Mm-hmm. Was the job dancing? Was it, uh, it was not dancing. She, it was the MMA. I think it was MMA fighter. She was the um, MMA correspondent. And she got on Twitter and she said something to the effect of, oh, look at what two hours worth of journalism classes got me. And all of the like hardcore journalists came for her so bad. And I don't know if that's why she was fired, but she was fired that same day or shortly after. And, and I think the struggle is, is that, you know, I'm sure this surprised her because isn't she the one who steals the dances from yeah. um, black uh, TikTok people? Yes, her. So she doesn't, she's not ha- working for something ain't had to happen for you because, hey, I don't have to be evasive. I just can watch black people do a mediocre interpretation of the dance they did and be an influencer. So and I'm bring not it on in real life. She, you know, I'm, she should be shocked. Like, this is what I do. I don't do things well. I just do things from being from the white perspective as a white girl. And what's the problem? It's been working for me. How dare you? So basically you saying we should start calling Addison Ray Big Red. I just got questions. I know we have to move on to our guests, so I won't ask any more questions. I, I, I will let you go ahead, Dr. Tip. <laughs> In our next segment, which is Centering Sisters, um, as you know, this is Centering Sisters, a video cast for Black women by Black women. I'm Dr. Tiffany here with my co-host, Dr. Carolyn Strong and the Tamara Winfrey Harris. So in this segment, Centering Sisters, we focus on some issues specifically from the way that it impacts Black women, girls, and femmes. And so in this Centering Sisters segment, we are going to be talking about colorism. We're going to define it. We're going to talk about what it looks like for us. And we are so excited. We were supposed to, we want to give a shout out first to Dr. Wilder, who was attempting to join us today, but had a medical emergency. Um, She's fine, but we're just going to say, yay, we ready, Dr. Wilder. So, but we do have with us today, Dr. Kimberly R. Moffitt, who has her PhD from Howard University. She is currently serving as an interim dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Before assuming this role, she was the director of the Language, Literacy, and Culture doctoral program and a professor of communication media studies, as well as an affiliate professor of Africana studies at UMBC. Her latest work explores the Black body in Disney programming, as well as the impact of colorism on Black 
teens. So we are so excited. We ask that you join us in welcoming Dr. Kimberly R. Moffitt to Centering Sisters. Thank you, Dr. Kimberly. Thank you for having me. And if I can just um, start out, I so appreciate you acknowledging um, the anniversary of Sandra Bland's um, transition. Her sister is a former student of mine. Um, and so I just want to also, in addition to her mom, send out love to um, Karen Reed Cooper, um, who has been quite the champion and voice around um, issues for Black women and certainly around issues of violence, um, police injustice, and wanting to make sure that her sister's name lives on, and she's doing a great job of doing so. Thank you so much for that. Um, absolutely sending our prayers, um, our thoughts to Sandra's sister um, and our ongoing encouragement and support of your work. Sometimes we end up in spaces because we choose to, which may be the case. And other times there are things that we just find ourselves placed in and we do that work. So thank you so much for that. So this is my behavior face. <laughs> oh, I did bring my paper bag, though. <laughs> you because I have a point to make about paper bags. No one believes me. Paper bags are darker than they used to be. This is not the color of paper bag that I used to, to put on top of my books. I just want to acknowledge that. <laughs> so in this segment, we're going to be talking about the idea of colorism. If you have questions, comments, please put them in um, the chat box. We are monitoring that. We want to hear from you. Make sure that you are also tagging in people and sharing this video. So in talking about colorism, what are some of the false statements, the things that we hear about colorism? Um, when people kind of throw out that term that you would like for us to talk about, that you hear, that you see, that makes you cringe? Because we have some, but we want to hear which one. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many. So I guess I, I wonder if it would be easier to hear what um, the three of you think about this so I can respond to it. What I can share, though, is I think it's important for us to recognize that this skin hue privilege or bias that we exhibit um, shows up in so many cultures. Um, and we are not unique in that sense. However, when it does show up in our community, we seem to have bought that line, hook, line, and sinker, and live and breathe it in a way that has done nothing but denigrated our um, community generation after generation. And so even though I remember one of the first um, pieces that I did on colorism and being at a um, Black Expo in Chicago, actually, and um, having an older gentleman stand up and said to me, you know, um, we've already dealt with this? Why are you still talking about this issue? And I thought, this is interesting. I mean, I remember him vividly because I remember how emphatic he was to say that this was dealt with in the 80s. There's no need for us to, in 2010, which is when I had published this book, that we should still be having this conversation. And so as easy as it is to want to think we're past so many of these issues, what we notice is the subtle messaging that we communicate to our children is exactly why it continues. And so the comments that we make, you know, um, the family member who um, during a family reunion one time said to me, she was like, oh, referencing my children, my son and my daughter. Oh, you have um, a scoop of chocolate and a scoop of vanilla and not recognizing how problematic that was. And I had to check her on it immediately because what I'm doing in this next generation or for this next generation is having very candid conversations to make sure my children are understanding why it's problematic, why we need to do something different about it and how we need to talk about it so we're not harming each other, but in fact, supporting and empowering each other. I think just to add to that, that sometimes we have to be very careful um, about what we do as well as what we say. Um, because I had a conversation with a parent once who had a set of twins and one was dark and one was not. And um, from day one, she would let the lighter child, you know, just wear her wash and go. She would just wash her hair, put the conditioner on and let it go. But the twin had to spend five hours at the shop getting braids and beads. And then when they're older, you can't figure out why the one sister feels some type of way about herself. And you're like, I've never said anything about their skin color. And it's like, sometimes it's not about 
what you say. It's about what you do. You're absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And it does require us to be hypersensitive about it so that we are aware of what we're communicating and not communicating. Um, and I think that that, see, that is seen as a, a, a hard job to have to always monitor self and what we're saying and doing. Um, but again, you know, one of the latest projects that I'm working on right now is talking to teenagers about colorism, because what I've noticed is so much of the work that we've done on this topic tends to focus on adults, right? Because they can process and talk about it in ways and reflect back on their childhood to share what harm was done as a result of that. And I think that's waiting too late. I mean, I think we should be having these conversations earlier, which I should add, I can't take credit for. That was in fact, my 15 year old daughter who told me that I needed to do that. Um, and she was the one, she is my, um, um, daughter, my child, who is who is a darker hue than I, who said these are the types of conversations that are coming up in our middle school, in our high schools all the time. Why are you waiting and teaching your class in college instead of having these conversations with um, kids now? And so, as a result of that, you know, we entered the pandemic last March, and by May. I was holding Zoom sessions with groups of teenagers, middle school and high school, boys and girls separately to hear how they were talking about the issue. So what I can tell you is they're talking about colorism. This is not something that has disappeared and gone away and we think about it differently and we don't have the same, we don't have the same stereotypes that we're tossing around about um, different skin hues because in fact, they are still living the same thing. And what was most interesting about those discussions and I'm just analyzing data for it now. But what was most interesting is the number of comments being made to um, teenagers were coming from familial circles. This wasn't all just their buddies at school. This was coming from right inside their home. This oh, that's was where it starts. family who they would say, yeah, they make these jokes about my skin here all the time, but I know they're playing. You only think it's playing because you're 14 and 15 years old now. And then you show up in my classroom at 21. And I feel like when I teach my black hair and body politics seminar, I need to be teaching it with a psychologist standing next to me because there's so much trauma that folks have endured and are still trying to work out as a result of those experiences that happen in childhood. They're not things that are happening to adults. No. They are things that happen to them in their childhood that they've held on to, that they have a sense of their self-worth as a result of the comments being made that they carry into um, well into adulthood and have a difficult time processing because people are telling them that it should be something that's un done and over with, that they shouldn't still be feeling this way about it. So, Dr. Moffitt, I actually have two questions for you. And one is a quick jump back to our first question, because I think we ought to define colorism, because I think there is some confusion. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people take the power part out of it, just like they do with racism, and just say it's any prejudice. Like, if you're prejudiced against light-skinned people, that's colorism. If, you know, you favor, like, if you're prejudiced against dark-skinned people, that's colorism, too. So I think we need to, we, I think we need to define it. And then my other question is, how do we tackle this? I'm glad you talked about tackling it in young people today, because what I've noticed, contrary to what the, the man you talked to said is that it seems to me to be getting worse than it was in the 80s when I was growing up. There seems to be this entrenched idea among young people. You see a lot of hashtag team light skin, hashtag team dark skin, and you have to pick a team. I was interviewing- oh, yeah. Don't you have rappers now that are named like Mulatto and- Mulatto. Um, and uh, some women that I've spoken, young women I've spoken to talked about the erasure of brown skin women in um, music videos. So everyone is um, mixed race or very light skinned or white or Latina. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, it seems like colorism has rebounded with a vengeance. So why and what do we do about that? Okay. So let's first deal with, um, uh, there are several definitions of colorism. The one that I often refer to is seeing this very much as skin hue privilege 
that shows up as power impacting those who are not assigned to a particular skin hue. And in our society in particular, across the, um, across the global world, um, it is always lighter complected. Those that are closer to what we consider white is what is considered ideal. And we can look at so many cultures and see that same line of thinking popping up. And so when we localize it to just the United States, it does have this degree of power with it that does have to be talked about. And when I think about the power, there are three things in particular that show up, and I'm make, making reference to this about Black women, but this can show up for um, any person of African descent. But specifically, so overarching, it impacts self-esteem and self-worth. So that's the first part. But in addition to that, the three specific ways where it can actually have a direct impact on your life is your marriageability or being partnered, right? Who you get to date, who you have access to, to possibly cultivate a partnering relationship or marriage with. It also shows up in terms of education, in terms of what access to certain educational spaces you have. And then also even bigger than that, is this tied to your money? Because you might not be able to get into certain occupations or have access to certain spaces that impact your career, impact your finances and your ability to take care of yourself. And those are three distinct areas that I think are very important for why there is this degree of power that comes along with this bias and privilege that we've put into place. To care, and, and I should mention, going right back to my 15-year-old daughter, um, I recently published a piece um, entitled um, uh, Light-Skinned People Always Win. Um, and it's a conversation between my daughter and I that I wanted to explore mother-daughter relationships when the mother and daughter are of different skin hues. How do these conversations around colorism pop up? That is a direct quote. Light-Skinned People Always Win is a direct quote from my 15-year-old daughter who said it seems like in life that light-skinned people are always the ones that get positioned or are selected or highlighted. And she was like, and mommy, no offense to you, but it feels like that's why you were able to get access to so many of the things that you have in your life. So thinking of my skin hue as something that she saw as directly connected to my success trajectory of who gave me, who, who decided to mentor me who encouraged me? Who told me I could go and get a PhD and do this well, right? All of those pieces, a 15-year-old is telling me, I feel like your skin hue probably had something to do with this. That's how insipid this is in our culture. It's ingrained in the schools. It's I'm, I'm, I'm here to so. tell you, as, as a K-12 educator, it, it, is, it is very esoteric, but it exists. And um, when I was going through my dissertation and I was dealing with um, the suspension rates, not just based on race, but based on hue, um, right. all of the studies will tell you that darker skinned students That's are right. suspended more for the very same offenses than their than their lighter skin counterparts. Absolutely. And even in um, even, when it's, even when it's girls, the same yeah, thing that happens with girls. Darker especially, especially when it's girls, yep. because there's this expectation that girls are supposed to behave with a certain level of femininity. And when you're talking about dark skinned girls, there is no expectation for you to know better. Right. So there is no retraining that's necessary because you're never going there's to no grace extended. Right. That, that too. There's no grace extended. That's that's the piece. Like we know our children are going to mess up. We know that they're going to make mistakes and possibly need to be disciplined. The issue is to what degree do you go to? And where is the space that you are afforded some level of grace in which to, you know, um, acknowledge that this is a child whose frontal lobe is not completely developed <laughs> and needs some additional support and guidance. And here's what we're going to do to try and address that instead of believing that they are these, you know, fully grown adults that have the capability of being able to know right from wrong. And so you now must discipline them as though they are an adult. It's funny that you mentioned that because that's the study I want to see. We have the adultification study based on race. I would love to see the adultification study based on skin tone. 
All right, Dr. Within, Strong, you talking something? Within, no, I, I'm, I'm very serious. That <laughs> no, I would love, no. to, I would love to see the adultification study specifically among girls based on skin tone. Yeah, at this point, it's all inferences we're making, but mm -hmm. all by all means. And some of that becomes a little more difficult to do, especially for, um, you know, an academic like myself who doesn't do behavior work. Um, you know, I am primarily a media studies scholar that once, you know, this study that I was talking about that I was doing with teenagers, what we did to get them talking to us is we watched the um, Black Like Us episode from Blackish and then had them respond to that. And that was the way that we got them talking about colorism. So some of what you're talking about is exactly in line with what behavioral psychologists can do and explore. I'd love to be a part of something like that because I think you're right. that Those are the areas that we need to be exploring so that we can see how early this starts and how impactful it is on our children in a longitudinal study, not just, you know, right. this one off, but looking to see how does it end up directly impacting their success trajectory? Like after you have denigrated the child for so many years, what then is expected for them to be able to do and um, continue to excel in their lives. And I would say it becomes much more difficult in which to do so. And some of that is because, again, the trauma that children have been inflicted by colorism really does impact their ability to think that they can do something. I shared the article with a number of friends who are also academics. And I had one friend who is 42 years old um, call me to say, I cannot finish um, reading this article. And I said, what's up? And she was like, this is too painful. This is drudging up a lot of memories, a lot of things that I'm still grappling with, that to see that your daughter seems to have a greater sense of self at 15 that I don't at 42 is hard for me. And she couldn't get through the article. And so these are real issues for a lot of us that have long lasting effects, which is why it is worthy of being explored and talked about instead of believing it's something that just happens in childhood. And like, you know, we, we grow out of it somehow. <laughs> That's not what happens. We actually live with it and find ways to cope with it instead of dealing with it. And I wanted to go back to the earlier question about what's so different. And, and what I would say to you is it's social media. Um, there's so much direct access and impact of that medium um, that it gives folks the immediacy of making statements, stating what they feel or want and not worrying about consequences. Um, and even if there are the occasional consequences, we still continue. We perpetually continue doing this. Um, I had a student send me, oh, actually, my daughter again. She pulled up on Instagram uh, just last week. Uh, what's the episode about? smash or um oh what's it called smash or pass smash or pass that's it and there was this whole conversation about this one beautiful dark skinned sister who most of the guys were saying pass but even the ones who said smash they still had to make comments about her skin hue i think there's something about social media also that has emboldened people to say what used to be quiet out loud. Absolutely. Like even when you think like there, you know, we can all name several male stars back in the day, the 80s, 60s, 70s, who clearly were not interested in brown skin or black women. Yeah, but we all knew Eddie Murphy like the light-skinned girls, but it took Katie Hart to say it. <laughs> they didn't say it. But now there seems to be clear license to, like every other year you hear someone like a Kodak Black who says, I, you know, I don't like dark skins or they're, they're too rough. Or oh, you know, yeah, Kanye West make a comment about how me and my, me and my boys like mutts. Yeah. Uh, like you have, there's this emboldening where you have in particular men feeling free and uh oh she's got her hand up <laughs> do it um, feeling feeling free to speak openly and say really colorist things without worry that they're going to have you know much of that 
That I just need to know if Kodak Black owns her like class. Like, you don't have to call on the people who raise their hands. <laughs> you know, I'm the darkest person on here, right? I could take that some type of way. <laughs> I, I mean, we don't let you. We don't let you answer anytime you raise your hand, just because we don't know what you're gonna say. <laughs> but, but I'm just saying. I just, I'm here. I want to hear. It. Yeah, we, we want to hear it. To know if Kodak Black owns a mirror. That's it. That's why we don't have quests. We don't let them quest. I think one of the things for me, um, the biggest struggle I have, which was kind of where we started these um, these uh, false narratives about what colorism is, is the struggle um, when we try to have these conversations around this, the impact of what it's like for darker skinned black women and to acknowledge that those things that you said, like we even know, you know, I love Angela Rye, but I know Angela Rye gets to say some things that other people can't say because of her lightness, because of how aesthetically she presents to the world. And that when we try to have these conversations and say, you know, she can say these things and there's others. And I'll, I'll say, I know um, even myself that I can go into rooms and say and do things because of how I present. And and when we try to have those conversations, lighter skinned black women inevitably say that they suffer from colorism too, that they that um, their light skin results in them being a victim of colorism too. How do we have this conversation? Because my usual is just, you know what, I'm gone. Like, mm. like, that's my usual response. But I know that that is not a healthy response. Mm. Um, how do we have this conversation with Black women, especially given the definition of what colorism it really is, to stop trying to claim that you suffer from it because you're treated differently because you're light. And I I agree with you. Yes. I mean, it is not the same, um, but I do think it impacts uh, their lived experience, too, in terms of how um, someone light skin shows up in society and how we respond to them. But in terms of where the real issues around bias and power are happening, it is most definitely um, Sisters of Darker Hues. And what I would say is many of us are still not ready to have those difficult conversations. Um, not together. I think it's um, it's something that many of us are probably working out if we are deciding to consider therapy and counseling that we can do because we feel safer in those spaces because the concern is coming together and having those conversations. Someone's going to say something and it will derail the conversation. It doesn't allow us to work through the issues issues, it allows us to throw all the red herrings so that we don't have to really deal with the issue. And that's why for me, I'm not having the conversations with my sister girls. I'm having the conversations with the young folks because those are the ones that I feel like need to hear these messages to counter what they're hearing elsewhere and to give them, to fortify them to deal with it as they're growing up and moving through life. Um, there's so many, again, that research that show, that um, data that's showing us that so much of this is coming from families, that we need to be able to have the conversations in families, but clearly we've done nothing but make jokes around it so that it lightens the mood around it. But in fact, what we're doing is further traumatizing our very own kin, our very own, the people that we say we love the most, we're traumatizing. And so, until we can get to the point of having those conversations, I tell everybody you need to be in therapy. That that That's my avenue. Because honestly, again, I don't think folks are ready because I think it is very hurtful. Um, I think it is very sensitive that folks aren't quite ready to have those types of conversations in spaces that are, you know, like this, right? I think we can have this conversation because we're all coming at it from a different perspective of understanding the work that needs to be done to heal ourselves. Um, but there are so many other spaces that folks haven't healed enough to even have the conversation. Go ahead, Tim. No, I was going to say, I also think sometimes the conversation further traumatizes and denigrates dark-skinned Black women in an effort to recognize the lived experiences of lighter-skinned women, which is important. Right. That is not colorism. That's right. What ends up happening is, so I remember what, I mean, it's now almost a decade ago with those two documentaries, Dark, was it Dark Girls and Light Girls and Light Girls, where, you know, you had Dark Girls, which actually was a semi-decent exploration other than some issues that I had. But then you had Light Girls, which then followed up with an hour and a half of talking how 
you know, big, dark-skinned, scary girls terrorized light-skinned girls, yeah. which undid everything that happened in the first documentary and further, like, ingrained all of these stereotypes about the, the girls who really are the victims of colorism. Yep. Agreed. The other part that I just kind of want to acknowledge, too, in this um, is that we do need to again, acknowledge what's happening in K-12. That's where I live. So that's where I'm always going to frame the conversation. And what's happening in K-12 is that the language has changed. So if you don't know what you're looking for, you will miss it. So what happens in, well, 9 to 12, where I am, is they won't say that it was a scary dark-skinned girl. What the language has changed, what they'll say is, I don't know what her problem is. She's just ghetto. And then they won't say, oh, she's light skinned. They'll say she thinks she's better than me. And if you don't realize that that's really what's encoded in that message, then you miss it and you miss the opportunity to have some sort of courageous conversation around this issue, which is clearly some sort of colorism or even interracial bullying that's happening because um, there are instances in which lighter skinned girls are being degraded because of the color of their skin. I just don't want colorism to lose its power by calling everything colorism. That is a thing that happens. It is something that needs to be addressed, just not as colorism. And so we've sometimes got to be mindful of how those things look in the younger kids because they don't have those words yet. Right. I'm, and that's I'm, where the work has to be done. Um, I mean, and, and, and I don't mean to sound like I've given up on the adults, but I am really focused on our teenagers who are having to contend with nonsense that raises, I mean, especially because of social media, They are living and breathing and surrounded by constant messaging and constant images, you know, even if they're not at school. I mean, for those of us that were raised in the 80s, you know, if we were being bullied or someone was talking about us, we at least had a reprieve when we left school and we could go home and be away from that and in the security of our homes, hopefully, um, until the next day. Now it's constant. It's around the clock that if our children have access to devices, they are constantly seeing the images, being receiving particular messages that are questioning who they are and their self-worth, all based on the particular skin hue they have. And, and I, I just wanted to kind of end with this part and kind of do some summary. I definitely agree. I think that, you know, each generation and this generation, especially um, being open to having these conversations, to challenging some of these colonial messages that have been passed down that center whiteness, that value proximity to whiteness um, are definitely ongoing conversations we need to have as a psychologist. <laughs> I will say I do firmly agree that there we have to still hold space for black women who are not just still dealing with the trauma, specifically darker-skinned Black women, dealing with the trauma of what colorism has done in, in all of those avenues that you've mentioned in their lives and how it has impacted the trajectory of their lives, but also having those conversations, because my concern always is if even if our focus is not that generation, that generation is responsible for the current generation and passing those messages down that we have some work to do. We have to acknowledge what colorism really is um, and stop trying to own an oppression that is not ours to own. Mm -hmm. Um, And that in these conversations, when we're also finding out and we're showing up and we're seeing that the reason why we're being allowed in spaces is because of what we look like. And we fail to acknowledge that, that that's also unfair and perpetuating even more colorism for darker skinned black women. Um, So I think that we have a lot of work to do as black women, girls and femmes. We have the first piece is acknowledging, you know what? I do not suffer from colorism. Like, I can't own that. That is not my oppression. And when we um, begin to have those conversations and acknowledge where it really lies, um, then we can actually try to get better for the next generation who at this point, the racially ambiguous seems to be the thing is they want someone who's racially ambiguous, which means closer to whiteness. And what impact does that have on um, our current generation of Black girls who so deserve better than what we got? 
And yeah. so we're hoping that we're able to do that. And so. I want to say, I, I do want to add, though, that yeah. one of the pieces that we forget in, in our discussion around colorism is so much of what we start thinking, and in particular women, mm-hmm. is very much tied to what men are saying about mm-hmm. us. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and I'm talking about the gamut, even if you are someone that is not cis and hetero, that it still seems to impact. I mean, come on, you got a dad, you've got uncles, you've got male cousins. And if you are hearing messages that counter your very existence and what you offer or show up as because you happen to be darker hued, that has a direct impact on who you are. And I had this conversation with my husband recently. I was like, you know, at some point in time, Black women shouldn't be the only ones that are doing the work and the self-reflection to say, I'm trying to better myself. What else do I need to learn so that I can do life differently? Some of this also means we need to check our men. And we need to make sure they understand how problematic and the role in which they have played to traumatize us and be okay with that conversation as well. Because I do think there's a bit of this that we allow our men off the hook and as though they don't participate in this, that that's just something women are doing. But where does it come from? And I'm not putting it on them and saying it is just them. I'm just simply acknowledging that sometimes in these conversations, even as women coming together to heal themselves, that we are focusing on doing better for ourselves, but we're not checking the other folks who also need to do better for themselves. That goes for grandma too, though. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not questioning that other women are involved. I'm just simply saying I really feel like there are times that we let men off the hook in terms of the role that they're playing in this process. And that needs to be addressed because little Wayne gets to produce record after record talking, you know, talking junk about dark skinned folks, but always affirming lighter complected folks, even though he looked like he does. Right. Or as does his daughter. As does his daughter, right? So what is, so again, perfect example of his daughter looking like him, listening to her dad rap the way that he does. He is participating in her trauma, but he's not being called on it. So when do we call our men on their behavior and participation in this instead of always thinking that this is about the internal work that we have to do? We also need to bring along those who are on this journey with us and let them know they need to check themselves, too. I love it. And that goes for your uh, uncles and your daddies who once yeah. they get successful, they decide that their the mark of success is a racially ambiguous or very light skinned black woman. And that is who they choose to partner with marriageability. Mm-hmm. So we want to thank you, Dr. Moffitt, for joining us. We don't want you to go. <laughs> OK, um, but we want to thank you for beginning this conversation, because, again, it's about ongoing conversation, self-reflection, evaluation, conversation with ourselves, with um Black men and boys, as well as with our daughters. So we want to thank Dr. Moffitt for joining us today. Before we go to the next segment, is there a way that people can find you? Sure. Um, I am on Instagram at Professor KRM. I'm also on Twitter more than Instagram at Media Zarina. Um, And so feel free to check me out on those spaces. I have gotten a little more quiet in those spaces now that I've entered into um, administration to keep myself safe. (laughs) Um, But however, I mean, any conversations around black hair and colorism, I'm all for and willing to engage and look forward to hearing from folks that want to have those conversations. And thank you so much. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I wanted to do one quick shout out to Heather Carper, who shared a couple of comments that Carolyn shared. She is amazing. She is actually in the beauty chapter of The Sisters Are All Right, talking about skin color and hair texture and how she came to believe she is beautiful. So check that out. Also follow Heather because she says like she is super smart, talks about great stuff, also has good cat videos. (laughs) (laughs) So so as we begin to come to an end, Dr. Moffitt, um, is there we like to shout out 
black women who are doing amazing things. Um, we know as black women, we do great stuff all the time, but we just do it because that's, we just do it. We don't necessarily get the recognition we deserve for the work that we're doing. So we have a, sis, we see you. And so we want to give you the opportunity to shout out a black woman or girl who is doing something amazing. Shout out their name. Tell us a little bit about what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I would go right back to um, Sharon Reed Coop, um, uh, Cooper um, because she is someone who got into speaking on behalf of Black women and Black girls because of the unfortunate situation with um, her sister Sandra Bland. Um, and I think, you know, a few years ago, soon after um, the death of her sister, I had her come and speak at the university and was in awe of the voice that she now has because I remembered her as an undergrad at DePaul University and that was not the same voice, but she found her voice because of this tragedy. And she saw this as a way to continue the legacy of Sandra, but also to make a path or pave a path for other black women and girls to have voice. I mean, the title of her talk was being, um, be a voice, not an echo to make sure that we are comfortable to know that our voice matters and that we need to be heard. And the level of social justice that she has done since then, um, I'm overly impressed by and very proud of the work that she has done. So she is my person to shout out, Sharon Reed Cooper. Sharon Reed Cooper, we see you, we appreciate you, we honor you and the space that you are holding and the voice that you are uplifting for your sister and for all Black women and girls. So we see you, sis. Um, before we get ready, I know there's an announcement we have to have, we said we're going to do, but I know um, I saw uh, Dr. Carolyn with a mug this time versus a glass or some. What were you no, drinking? No, it's a glass. It's okay. a mason jar. What are you drinking? And then what was what was in the mason jar? What, what, what were you drinking? <laughs> what, what? It, it looked like a mug because it was brown. Uh, you know, I have been on my quest to find Black-owned libations. So what I did, apparently Target carries this Black-owned sweet tea brand called Ellis Isle. Uh, my new thing is to go to Target and search their Black-owned. They have like a Black-owned cab. So I found the Ellis Isle sweet tea and I mixed it. It's just, it actually is a really good sweet tea. And I mixed it with some sweet tea vodka. And Katie from Just a Taint, I probably shouldn't be saying this on the air. She's probably going to yell at me. She sent me some homemade cordials. So she sent me a a homemade grenadine, which fermented. So now it's got alcohol in it. So it's called like an accidental wine grenadine. So I put a little bit of that in there and I am a very happy camp. So two thirds of my drink was black owned. Love it. Love it. You know what? Can we read? They're blowing up my phone. Like, what is that? <laughs> oh, you know, I had to ask because everybody always wants to know because you always come up with some interesting concoction um, for the show. I always have water. So that's just kind of no one ever asked me what I'm talking Well, trust me, I have some water, too, because that sweet tea was a little, little potent. And as was the grenadine, uh, Miss King. <laughs> Centering Sisters, an unapologetic podcast for Black women by Black women. Can can I go back to our last show and say that my soul sauce arrived? And it did. So good. I need the link for the sauce. Yeah, can you I thought I could find it at the store. I thought I could find it at the store. So we got to make sure we post the link so those yes. of us who thought we could find it at Myers, we um someone shouted out someone who um and the person they shouted out actually has a barbecue sauce line. She's a black woman. And so we were all on the hunt for it. I just didn't even pay attention to the link because you know what? I was like, they got it at Meyer. She mentioned Meyer, not at my Meyer. So I need the link because I want to make sure that I get my barbecue sauce um, because it, it just yeah. sounded, sounded awesome. So I'm excited about that. So Dr. Strong, you said that we have something to say. I did say that. I uh -oh. did. I was trying to get the sweet tea links. So you caught me off guard. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on. All right. This is regarding our next show, which for the record, on a Wednesday, we will not be smashing the patriarchy in um, Wednesday after next. We will be smashing the patriarchy in person Saturday after next. And I thought I had the thing up here, but I do not because I'm an idiot. But we are in person next uh, at the end of the month. 
We are in person. We together. are box free so yes we are going to be in the land i'm so excited that my lovely co-host will be joining me here in cleveland ohio where i am at um for a fabulous weekend we're going to be doing some other stuff and y'all get to see some of the other stuff later but we will be live and in person together doing a special episode on a saturday so we will put up the flyer we'll let y'all know when to log I, in for the record i do have the flyer so we will let you log we'll we'll post it on our social media let Absolutely. you know when to log in please make sure that you join us we will have libations in person. So that's always an interesting. Apparently um, I'm in charge of that. So yes, been who knew why Dr. Strong will be in charge of libations, but we will be in person. We are excited. We're gonna have a couple of other black women with us, joining us that day, having some amazing food, beverages, and just being live, all vaccinated. You can't come if you ain't vaccinated. <laughs> Just, well, I'm in Chicago where we, we still have free testing available. So I will be getting tested before I get. We the must card have, you know, me. we we expect cards like, <laughs> like you put it up to the window because you want. We ain't even opening the door. So yes, yeah, so we are going to. We are looking forward to being live in person for our last show of the month on a Saturday. So make sure that you tune in. Now, weren't we talking about um, enter? What was it? The, um, the intergenerational piece about how we need to understand that black aunties should be helpful and not always yelling at folks. Yes. So we will be having a conversation about um, intergenerational black women work. Um, So we will be, that will be the topic of our, our main topic of conversation when we come together. We want to again, thank Dr. Kimberly Moffitt for joining us today as we began this needed conversation on colorism. Make sure that you look for the flyer when we are going to be in person in two weeks. Share this video with your friends on your social media. Subscribe to our YouTube channel because in August, we're gonna be announcing some stuff about our plans for our YouTube channel as well. So make sure again, at Centering Sisters is the place to find us. We appreciate all of you for joining us on another episode of Centering Sisters, a video cast for black women by black women. I'm Dr. Tiffany, along with our special guest, Dr. Kimberly Moffitt and my always amazing co-host, Dr. Carolyn Strong and the Tamara Winfrey Harris. Everybody have a great rest of your week. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to leave a rating and review. For bonus content, visit Centering Sisters on Patreon. And keep in touch with us at Centering Sis on Twitter and Centering Sisters on Facebook. Got feedback or an idea for a future show? Reach out at centeringsisters at gmail.com. And remember, love Black women, support Black women, believe Black women, trust Black women. Talk to you next time.